The great Puritan Thomas Brooks once wrote, It is not the bee's touching of the flower that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower that will draw out the most sweet. It is not he who reads the most, but he who meditates most, who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. Well, last week we continued our study of the book of Philippians. For those who are visiting, our standard practice is to go line by line, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. But as we said last week, every once in a while upon the path, you will see an especially glorious flower, and you'll want to dwell there for a minute to unpack the doctrine. So for a time, borrowing Brooks's language, we want to abide upon one doctrine, last week and now this week, namely, the doctrine of union with Christ. It's not an overstatement to say that Paul's chief ambition, apart from converting the Gentiles, so yes, he wanted to convert Gentiles to the church, but after that, his chief ambition was for the church to marvel over and over and over again in their union with Jesus Christ. Author James Stewart wrote, The heart of Paul's religion, which we know, of course, means Christ's religion. Paul was a spokesman for Jesus Christ. The heart of Paul's religion is union with Christ. This, more than any other conception, is the key which unlocks all the secrets of his soul. I like that. Union with Christ is, this is what it is, it is the great actual, unspeakable reality that by faith in the risen Christ, we are not simply forgiven of our sins, as wonderful as that is, or we're not simply on an eternal trajectory now from eternal life rather than eternal darkness, which is glorious, but even more, as Christians, we are literally united to the person of Jesus Christ. Right now, Jesus is, in a very real way, actually seated next to God the Father, and we are with him there. We saw this last week in Colossians 3 where it says, verse 1, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then in verse 3, And you are hidden. Another translation of that would be kept safe with Christ in God. That is, since Christ is our covenant head, he is our federal representative. Where he is, we are. And where we are, he is. We are inseparable through his spirits. Jesus Christ dwells in you right now, which means part of the body of the living Christ is seated on a padded seat in Goodlesville, Tennessee, right now, within your very person. Now, there is certainly some mystery about this, but it doesn't make it any less true. We must not fall into the trap of thinking, if I can't fully understand something, then that questions its reliability. 
That would be like a man walking up to the Pacific Ocean with a coffee mug and saying, I will only believe in as much of the Pacific as I can fit in this mug. That's clearly ridiculous. It's not that the Pacific depths don't exist. Rather, the man is just very limited in his capacity. And so it is with us in the mystery of the gospel. We are finite beings who were created and redeemed by an infinite God. And so, of course, there are some things that we won't comprehend yet in its fullness. But here's something to consider as we think through union with Christ. I submit that we make room for this category of mystery in our actual lives every day with surprising ease. For instance, if you're married, the moment the minister, drawing on the authority of God himself, declared you man and wife, you became, in the sight of God and the church, one flesh. That is, in very real reality, two souls were intertwined into one person. So if my wife leaves the country in a mysterious but an entirely real way, I have left the country. A part of me has left the country. Now, I can't explain the fullness of that mystery, but I know that it's real and I experience the comfort of that oneness. And so, in some sense, it is with our union with Christ. Where Christ is, we are. And where we are, Christ is. Or as Luther said last week, we're cemented to each other. And this is astonishingly good news. So we're going to think on it some more today. I'll read Philippians 1.8 again, which was our launch pad last week, so we can remember that, and then we'll dive in from there. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8 says, this is Paul writing, For God is my witness, which means... Listen up. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So it's in those last three words, of Christ Jesus, that we see Paul. He is self-consciously aware that his union with Christ was a very real, very immediate impact on his person. That is, his mind in real time was set on his union with Christ. Last week, we asked the question first, what is union with Christ? And the chief takeaway from it was, it is God's answer to our biggest problem. That is, through sin, man was alienated from the life of God. We were cut off from the life of the triune God And through Christ, we are united back into the life of God. Through Christ, we are re-fellowshipped. We are caught up into eternal life. Now today, we want to shift our focus from the primarily eternal implications of our union with Christ and ask, okay, but how does union with Christ impact my Monday morning? How does union with Christ actually impact my actual Christian life? Something we like to say here is we want to have one eye on the horizon and one eye on the plow. And so last week was our eye on the horizon. So union with Christ, here's the eternal implication. And then today, but what is union with Christ when I'm looking at the plow tomorrow morning? 
And it turns out the Bible has much to say to this point. And so we'll consider two specific ways the scriptures answer that question. How does our union with Christ impact Monday morning? Number one, it impacts the way we battle temptation. Our union with Christ impacts the way we battle temptation. Every one of us will face several important battles this week. They will come, they will come in the form of temptations to sin. As John Owen once famously wrote, you better be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And these temptations, which will come, will not be generic. They will be fine-tuned to exploit a specific vulnerability that you have. Do you know what yours will be? We should know. I hope so, because the enemy certainly knows where it'll be. And when this temptation comes, there are two potential lies that the enemy wants you to believe. So I face a temptation. Now, there's a ditch on either side that I could fall into even before I give into it, if I do. The first lie is this, to believe that sin is not that big of a deal. So that will be one of the lies you could believe when tempted, when in fact sin is a very big deal. And sin is never a bigger deal than when you don't think it's a very big deal. Jesus means to unsettle those who think very lightly of sin with verses like Matthew 5, 22. He says, whoever says, you fool from the hearts, they'll be liable to the hell of fire. Sin is a big deal. The enemy wants you to think it's not. That's the first lie we could believe when tempted. The second lie, the other ditch that we could fall into, is to believe that we are powerless to resist a specific temptation. That is, you do believe it's a big deal, you agree with God, you hate what he hates, and you love what he loves, but you felt so defeated for so long that you no longer fight temptation in faith expecting victory. So those are the two potential ditches that we could fall into. And the answer that Scripture gives to both of them is this, when you face those lies, dwell deeply on your union with Christ. And we'll consider how that applies here. So the first ditch, temptation comes, it feels appealing, the lie arises that it's no big deal, God's forgiven you before, he'll forgive you again, just go for it. And then in that moment, you think consciously, I am united to Jesus Christ right now. Christ is with me. And that changes things. Because we remember it's not just us sinning alone behind a closed door. Rather, we are bringing Christ with us, the Holy One, wherever we go. Indeed, we are the body of Jesus Christ in that moment. And if this realization lands we will not be okay with sinning casually. This will feel totally incongruent and will cause a great tumult of soul where there was once indifference. And that tumult 
is grace. It is the Holy Spirit of God saying, this does not fit at all anymore. This is exactly the logic that Paul used when confronting the cavalier Corinthians over their sexual sin. He points to their union with Christ. So for quick context, part of goddess worship in Corinth involved cult prostitution. So let's just say there was some significant unlearning to do when it came to the worship service. And in chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make it a member of a prostitute? Never. And then verse 19. Or do you not know that your temple, your body is the temple of the very Holy Spirit within you? And you have it from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, for most of us, our sin struggle is is probably not prostitution, but the principle stands. He just used that because that was the actual sin facing the Corinthian church. What would he write to Pilgrim Hill? What would he write to you? What specific temptation will you face this week where you need to remember in that moment you are the body of Christ? Would it be the temptation towards emotional adultery or pornography or ungodly anger or gossip wrapped in a prayer request or crude joking? Christ has nothing to do with these things. And we are in Christ now. I can still vividly remember, I think it was 17 years ago, I and some friends of mine were staying at my grandparents' house. And that night, the final episode of a show that was very popular back then was going to air. And so we we wanted to watch it. But I felt really nervous when my grandpa came in and sat in the room with us. You guys ever been there? It's the worst. Because this show gloried in all kinds of godlessness. And my thinking was, well, it's the final episode ever. Perhaps they will just wrap it all up and it will be fine and there won't be anything too glaringly bad. The very first scene, I will not go into detail, but it was wildly inappropriate. It just dragged something that is holy and sacred totally through the mud and then just laughed about it. And my grandpa didn't say anything. He just stood up and walked out of the room. (laughs) And I felt so ashamed in that moment, which was exactly the right feeling. Shame can be a gift from God. I had invited my godly grandfather to participate in something God despises in his own house. And it was a shameful thing for me to do. And if I didn't yet have the moral maturity to resist unwholesomeness on my own, his presence should have caused me to make a better choice. But it didn't. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us. Because we're united to Christ, let us not casually, willingly make peace with sins that put him on the cross. So God himself wants this to be part of our battle plan when we face temptation. Part of the battle plan. And then there's the other ditch when tempted. Another lie the enemy wants you to believe. And that is that you are 
defeated and you are powerless. I wonder if perhaps this would not be our greater temptation to believe that lie at Pilgrim Hill than the other. He wants you to believe that you simply will never prevail over your chief struggle. That though scripture says that you have been set free from sin, that it is talking about everybody but you. And it's in this moment that remembering your union with Jesus Christ, setting your mind on that is so vital. Because the truth is, on your own, you cannot overcome temptation in any lasting way. But the gospel says you are not alone. You are one with Christ. And Christ is not just the king of kings, which he is, but he's also a very personal, very present, very precious help in our time of need. This is what the writer of Hebrews expresses so wonderfully. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Hebrews chapter 4 for just a moment. Because I, I want you to see these verses. They are so remarkable. Hebrews 4, we'll read 14 through 16. It says this, and, and, and this is for us to hear, right? That's why God puts things in the Bible, because we need to hear them. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. So, so he really ascended. He's really real. He's really God. Jesus, the son of God, because that's true, objectively, let us hold fast to our confession. That is, let's believe what we profess. Let's, let's hold fast to our confession that Christ is with us and is in us. So even pause there for a second. Notice he didn't appeal, appeal to our feelings to know our confession is true. He says, because Christ did pass through the heavens. That's why you should hold fast to your confession, because it's true. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Have you ever felt weak? Have you ever felt like no one can understand your struggle? Jesus can understand your struggle. Jesus can sympathize. Jesus knows your secret sorrows. He knows every vulnerability you have. He knows how many times you've been disillusioned with yourself. He knows your strongest temptation. And this scripture says that he can sympathize with that. Astonishing. Continuing on, back half of verse 15. But, so he, it's not that he can't sympathize, he can, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, in the end part there, he's not saying, see, Jesus can do it, why can't you do it? Jesus resisted temptation, what's your problem? That's not what he's saying there. That's, that's not why he puts a highlighter on that. This is not a guilt trip. Why does the writer highlight that Jesus never sinned when tempted? 
Because that's the reason he's worthy to be our high priest. That's the reason Christ can truly help us. Because he really atoned for every sin that you will struggle with. If you are a Christian, every sin you struggle with is a defeated sin. It's one that Christ paid for. That's why he says that. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's true, and that's what we believe when we're tempted. Verse 16. So in light of all of that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. He's not speaking to Christian all-stars when he says that. He's speaking to weak sufferers when he says that, but who are humble, who know they have needs. What a precious help our union with Christ is when we are weak and tempted. Christ himself is waiting to help because he is united to us and he is sympathetic with our struggle. Jesus Christ has oceans of grace available to all who are his. Tempted Christian, Christ will give you strength to resist any temptation you face. And he does so with full knowledge of what it's like to face that temptation in that moment. Christ is a true veteran comrade here. Christ did not stay hidden away in heaven while we struggled here below. Rather, he entered into the trench, into the warfare, and he took the full thrust of the devil's artillery and overcame the sin for us. So he really is our sympathetic high priest. And you are united to that Christ. Sin conqueror, totally sympathetic to the humble struggler. In 1 Corinthians, Paul helps us avoid not just the first ditch of taking sin too lightly. So he does that. But he also helps us in the despair ditch as well. He writes, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Christian, no temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And what is the escape? It is nothing less than Christ within you, giving you fresh spiritual strength, renovating our old desires and giving us glorious new desires that are Godward. So yes, the truth that we are united to Christ matters a great deal when we face temptations, those that make war against our soul. But practically, how do we activate? How do we bring our union with Christ to bear in that moment of temptation? The answer is through prayer, through prayer. And this is the second aspect of union with Christ that I want us to consider today in closing. It not only impacts how we fight temptation, but number two, our union with Christ 
impacts how we approach prayer. So when I'm in a meeting and someone calls or texts, I typically ignore it until afterwards, but there is one number that when it comes through, it always has my attention. It's my wife's number. If her name comes up, the person I'm with can wait for that moment. She always has my ear. Now, sometimes when I see her name, I pick up and it's not her, but it's one of the younger kids calling who doesn't have their own phone. And they're able to access me as well because they got in through the name of my wife who always has my ear. And similarly, when we pray to God the Father, our prayers gain a privileged hearing before him because when we pray, we come to him through the Son, united to the Son. Our union with Christ means, catch this, believe this, Our union with Christ means that when we pray, Christ prays. Have you had that thought recently? That's amazing. When you pray, Jesus Christ prays. And this is not something he does begrudgingly, as if he had better things to do but will patronize us for a moment. That's not true at all. This is what Christ loves to do. This is one of the very reasons he became incarnate, so he could do that. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So that's union with Christ. And then check this out. Because he always lives to make intercession for us. I love the way he says that. You can draw near to God through Christ because he always lives to make intercession for you. Christ was not simply a co-signer on your salvation where he showed up for an hour to make sure the paperwork was in order then signed his name in blood and then left you and kept at a distance until you see him in glory. That's not true at all. At the moment of your salvation, he declared, this one is mine and I will now be their representative forever. Not just in salvation, but in their supplication as well. My wife is also an attorney and I've had the privilege of watching her in the courtroom before. And being in that setting really helps you realize how powerful the concept of an advocate is. Where someone speaks on someone else's behalf. You have people there who are in a sad situation who don't even understand the law that well and who certainly cannot plead their own case articulately. And often they don't even have a good case. (laughs) Their case doesn't have much merit. But in the courtroom, they have an advocate. They have one who was appointed to speak for them to dignify their case and to articulate their request and to seek favor from the judge. Someone who will confidently ask for them what sometimes they didn't even know they had the right to because they don't understand the law. An advocate. And so it is with us. Think through this with me just for a second and we're getting close to the end here. Through our union with Jesus Christ, not only do we have an advocate, but for us, our advocate is the judge's perfect beloved son, 
who speaks on our behalf. And our prosecutor, Satan, which means accuser, has been silenced through the cross. So no condemnation, only the beloved son making appeals for us. And the judge has already adopted us into his family. Christians, when we pray, we should confidently. We have good reason to. Jesus made the connection between our our union to him, how that impacts our prayers in John 15, 7 through 8, explicitly. He said this, if you abide in me, that's, that's union, if you abide in me, and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now the carnal heart could hear this and take it as some genie in the bottle type thing. So great, just Jesus said, ask whatever you want and you'll get it. No, that's not what he's saying at all. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12? He said, three times I asked that that would be removed. And Jesus said, no, that's not going to happen here because I actually have a better plan for you through it. No, our union with Christ is not a blank check to fulfill any desire, whether carnal or not, that may bubble up. Rather, this text reveals something far better, and it's this. As we abide in Christ and his word abides in us, our will is more and more conformed to his will. His desires become our desires. And what does Christ desire? He said it explicitly. I desire that the Father would be glorified through you and that you would bear much fruit for the kingdom. So as we abide in Christ and we pray to the Father with hearts that desire his glory and our fruitfulness, we have every reason to believe he will honor that prayer. So Pilgrim Hill, you are united to Jesus Christ through faith in him. And this not only secures your eternal life, it also impacts Monday morning. It impacts the way we fight temptation. And it impacts how we approach prayer. So let us pray with great faith and with great frequency in Jesus' name. This is not simply a Christian tagline. This endows your prayer with the authority of the risen Son of God. Maybe. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us pray. Even right now, Lord, as we approach you in prayer, we marvel that Jesus Christ, even this prayer right now, he is interceding for us. He is interceding for me. And Father, I pray as we approach tomorrow morning, Monday morning, that we would experience our union with Christ in ways that we never have before, that we would set our minds on it, and it would be a great comfort to us. And we would pray with confidence. And I pray that you, that you would be glorified through that. And that we would bear much fruit. I pray all these things through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit. One God, forever and ever. Amen. And when Jesus' disciples asked him how they ought to pray, he responded and said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.